This is Magic City Soccer. Es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica. This is Magic City Soccer. Este es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica de Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. Let's go, Miami FC. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer. Vamos, Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer. Este es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica de Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer, your home for everything you need to know about soccer in Miami-Dade County. Hello, soccer fans in South Florida and beyond. Welcome to our show. It's another two-man show for you this afternoon or evening or morning or whenever you're listening. Uh, this is Matthew Bunch, and I'm joined alongside Omar Mubayad. Omar, how you doing, buddy? hi So, a lot to talk about. We're going to focus right in locally on the Miami FC uh, and the NPSL Sunshine Conference, uh, including Miami United as well. Uh, an interesting result over the weekend from, from their game. Uh, but let's start with Miami FC. They have clinched the uh, the regular season crown, um, a convincing victory against Jacksonville United on Saturday night that we uh, broadcast uh, from Buccaneer Field. Um, it was a pretty uneventful uh, regular season campaign for Miami FC, you know, the one uh, hiccup against the aforementioned Miami United, but uh, overall, they're pretty much where you want to be. Right, they're exactly where you want to be, and this is kind of what we've been expecting uh, from this team the whole way through. We expected it to be a perfect regular season, and I think we were caught in the same expectations last season, even though the first team, Jacksonville Armada, were in the race as well with the MPSL. Now, kind of what I'm cons- what I'm concerned about is, and what I alluded to in the preview article that just went out earlier today about this match coming up on Wednesday is, this is the first time that the Miami FC as an organization or as a club, however you want to look at it, they've played very few games. They've played 11 games so far this season. You play more games in an NESL spring season competition and the Open Cup normally than these 11 games in total, including the one Open Cup loss to the Florida Soccer Soldiers. So, to me, this is a well-oiled machine. But this well-oiled machine hasn't been tested. And I think that's really what kind of sticks in the back of my head and what worries me. Because when you compare it to last year's roster or last year's edition in the MPSL, at least you had, well, if I'm not mistaken, it was three or four Open Cup games at that point when you look at the play-in game and so on. So I think that's kind of where I just draw my panic from. Yeah, it's... It's an argument that appears in pretty much every sport, rust versus rust. Um, and Miami FC have, again, for... I didn't mention the Open Cup match. I'm, I was speaking of the league specifically, but it is good to mention that they they have lost two matches, one against Miami United, one against Florida Soccer Soldiers. It is a bit of concern that when the heat was on, not their best showing. And so now the heat's going to be ratcheted up a little bit. But... You know, we said the same thing last year. You know, right, right. Having the game against Miami United, the only loss against Miami United they had was in the Open Cup, and so we start to wonder, oh, is the, the pressure is going to get turned up? Are they going to, you know, wither? And instead, they put on the best display of soccer we maybe have seen from the club in its history. Well, no, that, that run in 2017 <laughs> was pretty good, too. But, I mean, a really incredible showing in the NPSL playoffs. Right. And so now you're wondering, this is a side compared to last season. It is different. There are, there are some familiar faces, but there was a lot of turnover. These are different players. These are players that head coach Paul Douglas has said are really in his style in the type of football he, he wants to see played. That club last year wasn't really in his style, but they rose to the occasion. What does this year's team have in store? 
I mean, I think what we've seen from them so far is prolific attacking, running up totals, not necessarily just, you know, Paul Dogley's trying to prove a point and run a muck 8-0, 9-0 games, but at the same time, it just shows that within the Sunshine Conference that there is kind of like polar opposites in terms of team structure and, and consistency and, and quality of play, where you have, you know, Miami FC and Miami United with both prolific attacks, Naples United with you know, if not the best defense in the conference, the second best defense behind Miami FC, and they're earning a second place or a semifinal hosting right because of their defense. And then at the same time, you have the the, the bottom three, which, you know, youth teams trying to make, maybe make, take that next step. Jacksonville Armada, you know, getting that fourth playoff spot really just on principle of the fact that they were better than Central Florida and Storm and not anybody else because they really didn't gain any points against anybody else so th- there were that two polar opposites and and you know go i'm not trying to be negative but going back to what worries me is we saw miami fc last uh, last regular season match on saturday being played with four guys on the bench and one of the four was a goalkeeper you know what i mean so on your bench you had Mohamed chow you had dylan Myers, and you had miguel gonzalez so that tells me wait a second you know some of the names that we were expecting to be to see big things from didn't happen. Robert Baggio Casir tearing his ACL in the first match, in the first minutes of the first match of the game. Okay, that you don't expect that guy to come back. That's fine. You understand that. But Marco Franco, John Niskins on a huge collision two weeks ago against Naples United, and he wasn't in the lineup. So something's lingering there. Uh, then you've got you know Brenton Griffiths not in the lineup again. Another player on defense. So and, and and those are two center backs and a fullback. So you're starting to worry like, well, wait a second, what's going on here? So I don't worry too much as on the attacking end, but it's like, can that defense hold? I would definitely say you know Miami FC. You always have to remember you are grading on a curve with Miami FC in their conference. They put on a dominant performance. Period. End of story. Moving on. The side of the ball, the, the 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 facet of the game that you were most confident in with Miami FC is their attack, followed by their midfield, followed by the defense. And uh, Mark Pace has done a, a very capable job Excellent in replacing job. Uh, Indio Vega. But that back line has not always inspired the most confidence. And when you're talking about multiple players dealing with injuries heading into the playoffs – you you know it's it it's all about gelling it's all about chemistry and that would that was a strength of Miami FC for a while is that back line it's like they were in each other's heads they right. they knew exactly what was going on at all times and we haven't really seen uh, that as a strong suit of this team I don't think again grading on a curve they still have not given up a ton of goals or anything five goals all season right. you know what I mean so but there right. have been you know I think back to the 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 game that really stands out in my mind is the Central Florida game there were a number of opportunities for Central Florida to amass goals, plural. Um, they were Central Florida. They didn't have the finishing ability to make it happen. But when you start playing against Miami United, when you start going into the South region and playing a Chattanooga or, or you know any of the teams from the Lone Star Conference that can make it out, you know they score goals. They they have uh, attacking capabilities. And so you, you do wonder, one, not the, not the most strong it could be. Two, injuries. So now you're putting guys either, you're keeping the, the back line you have, 
or you're bringing guys back in. You know, Franco has done. A, I thought of, I, I think he's done a very good job so Excellent far this job. year when he's gotten on the field. But you're now bringing a guy back in who's injured, and I'll draw from my non-Miami FC experience. When you look at the Champions League final this year, two big players who came in off of injuries. I mean, obviously the headline was Harry Kane, who didn't do much of anything. And on the other side for Liverpool, Roberto Firmino, who it was the, you know, we're talking about attack here. But same idea where you bring a guy in off of injury, you got to put him in because he's your guy. But when you're not at 100% against that escalated level of competition right all of a sudden you could have a liability not an asset well i think what's going to be key especially when we go into wednesday's matches you kind of look at the final and you think okay i've got to use what's been getting me here especially in that final but for that semi-final match and it's not that you're overlooking jacksonville it's the fact that you know that your quality top to bottom might be just enough to get you across that finish line sure whether it's pretty or whether it's ugly. Because that first half wasn't necessarily the prettiest half of football for Miami FC on Saturday. Although they did go into the lead 2-1. So you can't fault them for that. It was sure. much better than the first half against Naples where both teams went in nil-nil. However, and this is the big caveat. Can you put guys on the field against the pacey wingers of Miami United? Because I think if you're Miami FC, you're looking at that Naples-United-Miami United match and thinking, you know... Naples United can't really score. Naples United scored 24 goals all in over 10 games. And a lot of those goals came against Central Florida and Storm, the two weakest uh, defensive teams in the conference, because they didn't score against you. You know what I mean? I mean, they, right. they got one at the, on the road, but when, at home on Saturday, it was a 2-0 win. It ended up being comfortable despite being kind of risky at the beginning. Um or do you want to play Miami United who can give you fits with their pacey wingers? And and that's really the key. So then do you leave Lloyd Sam and Otelo Ball in the fullback positions? Or if you start getting some of these guys back, now do you start tinkering? And now you're experimenting going into the playoffs? And it just causes a whole bunch of headaches for Paul Dalglish and the technical staff. Yeah, you know, you look at the, the, the Sunshine Conference heading into the playoffs now. Um... I think you can credibly say this is a three-team race. And Miami FC are clearly, obviously, both on the scoreboard and I think, according to logic, the favorite. But you, just like last year, you think coming into this, it's going to be a two-team race. And all of a sudden, a team jumps up and really announces themselves. Last year, it was Miami and Jacksonville. Right. And maybe Miami United. And all of a sudden, very quickly, we realized, oh, no, wait a minute. Miami United is the real deal. Correct. This year, you think, okay, well, Jacksonville is going through whatever Jacksonville is going through. It's going to be Miami and Miami. And now this Naples United team have been incredibly impressive against Miami FC and are two for two against Miami United. They've, they've done the business against Miami United and have put themselves in a position to host. You know, we've been thinking this whole season it's going to be a Miami Derby for the Sunshine Conference. It, it might be an Alligator Alley Derby when you have Naples United possibly coming back to um, Buccaneer Field. And as you mentioned, it gives Paul Dalish fits because those two teams can't be any more different, I feel like, in terms of what their strategic decisions might be uh, lining up against Miami FC. You know, it's funny because I, I'd never, ever, ever, ever say that when you're in knockout stages or you're in the final uh, fixture date of a group stage match, that matches should not be at the same time. 
I always want them to be aligned because it makes sense. Right. It makes it hard to scoreboard watch. It makes it much harder for one team to tank and another team to kind of, you know, get notice of the tanking and then go out and, you know, have a the performance of their lives. This is the one time where I will tell you, I hope to God that that Naples-Miami-United match is not at the same time. <laughs> Despite the placeholder on the MPSL website saying, hey, it's going to be the same date, 7 p.m., we're going to play the game out in Naples, I hope it's not. And the reason why I hope it's not is because Naples-United does not have a broadcasting arm. Right? They don't have the luxury of having people like us at their disposal. What do they do? They put on a camera, they put it on Instagram Live, and then good luck counting the minutes for yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Start and, your clock. Right, exactly. So <laughs> it makes it difficult. And we saw that firsthand on Saturday when we're trying to watch the Naples United match uh, against Miami United. You, through Instagram, we have the phones on in the press box. And we have like one eye on our game, one eye on their game. And then like we don't know what's going on because we can't get communication with anybody from Naples. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm there texting freaking Ezekiel Tahir on the side. Oh, lightning delay? Like, yeah. right. like Miami, United's camp, Miami United's captain. You guys still in a lightning delay? Okay. But the reason why this match is going to be interesting as we kind of veer away from Miami, Jacksonville to, to Naples, Miami United. Miami United's goalkeeper got a red card in the 91st minute yes. of that match. That is a very big storyline that we need to address. Um, that uh, I would say you don't want it to start at the same time, even if they're scheduled for the same time. It, it's in Naples. Let's expect a lightning delay that'll uh, <laughs> that'll push it back to nine. Um, I think you at at this stage right now, knowing what we know, I think you have to favor Naples in that game. United will be on their backup keeper because I mean the worst situation in the world. When you're a team heading into to a knockout game and your keeper picks up a red card in the dying minutes of a game that was 2-0, correct? 1-0. One, one, it was 1-0, one, no, I'm nil. sorry. So it, it, was, it was still competitive, but man, what, what a really harmful blow to Miami United. I mean, yeah, to Miami United. You build up this whole season getting ready for the playoffs and then to have something like that to deal with, I mean, it's tough. No, it is hard, and to me, if you're Miami United, I think this is kind of where you really change the script for yourself. Because what we've seen the last three seasons in the MPSL from Miami United is they have these really good regular season runs. They're in the mix, they're in the mix. And then you start getting to like the last fixture day and you start seeing the fade come in. You know what I mean? Like they're just, They've been going so hard. And, and one thing, to United's credit, this year that hasn't happened or I should say that hasn't happened this year that has happened the years before is that you have not seen an exodus of their roster this season where yeah. you had guys like Nicholas Grobsov disappear and Victor Pillai picking up you know injuries and, and, and whatnot where now the whole team as a unit is still there. Chris Nurse isn't going anywhere. Matthias Gottler is not going anywhere. Nicholas, uh, Nicholas McCauley, they don't seem to be going anywhere. They're in it now for the long haul because of what could be coming up on the horizon. Um... And, it, and that attacking proficiency is still there, which is why if you're Miami FC, you're kind of looking at this game and saying, you know, if it's Naples, I'm not really, I'm, I'm going to feel much better about my odds with that than I will against the Miami United, despite what the standings say. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what Miami United can kind of dig up, what, what they can kind of pull out, you know, from their, from their, their, bowels you know the heart of the team you know like because it's it's they've clearly 
just like Miami FC have always kind of had a bit of a bugaboo with Miami United, Miami United seems to have that with Naples. And going back to last season, it wasn't Miami United uh, in that final, even though Miami United had kind of jumped up and and, and grabbed attention. It was was Jacksonville that got there, um, even after United had uh, knocked out Jacksonville in the Open Cup. So you do wonder, as the the season grinds on, um, will Miami United have the the, the energy, the, the juice, you know, that like you said, they play very hard. They are a very physical team, as we've talked about before. Um, they 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 go at it a hundred percent. And sometimes, the longer the season grinds on, especially these players who are accustomed to this shorter schedule, um, a lot of them that Miami United has, uh, you know, sometimes you run out of the, you run out of energy. Right now, we look ahead. We look ahead, and we are familiar now with the path that Miami FC have out in front of them. Obviously, the first step is Sunshine State conference playoffs that's going to be two games if miami fc want to defend their sunshine conference title they got to win two games right then it's into the south region right and there are some familiar names and some new names uh looking ahead who might the miami fc face off against so here's the interesting part the south region almost sets up more like a structured knockoff knockout competition than any of the other regions why because when you start looking to the midwest region it's it's literally the, the the conference winners and the conference runner-ups. That's it. So you're going to get six teams in total. The best two teams get a bye. And then, as I found out not too long ago, at some point between now and I think they have their first playoff game on Sunday, they need to go to a hosting site, get the, get the rights to the hosting site. Like The six teams will vote amongst themselves, figure out where they want to play. <laughs> and then acquire the, you know, obviously the time slots for the field that they want to play at. That is super complex. In the West, the playoff is going on already. And the leaders of the West, the FC Golden State, out of the Southwest Conference Division, they've been knocked out. All right? And, of course, when we look at the Northeast region, we've got three uh, conferences. And the playoff structure there is a little uh, hectic as well. But the Cosmos are leading the way. And, and you know, honestly, if we kind of look at you know, the standings, and we look at the way things should play out, if we extrapolated the data correctly, you would likely favor the Cosmos to come out of that Northeast Conference. But let's focus on the South, right? Each division or each conference in the South has a four-team playoff. As we've talked about the Sunshine Conference, we know that's Miami uh, hosting Jacksonville on Wednesday, Naples hosting Miami United on Wednesday, and then the two winners will face off in the Sunshine Conference final with Miami FC holding home field advantage not only through the sunshine conference uh playoffs but also through the south region playoffs when you take a look at the southeast conference division you've got chattanooga greenville Asheville, and inter nashville so chattanooga will face off against nashville and then greenville will take on Asheville city now it's interesting because this might be one of the most competitive divisions outside of the sunshine conference because a team like chattanooga normally very good in mpsl play they're actually the lowest ranked first seed or the lowest conference winner in terms of points per game, which is the MPSL tiebreaker, right? So which means if Miami FC were to advance out of um, the Sunshine Conference and Chattanooga were to advance out of the Southeast Conference, they would play each other in the South Region semifinal with Chattanooga having to travel down to Miami in what could be a preview of Founders Cup and or NYSA? Shrug, shrug emoji? Right? In the Lone Star Conference, you've got the Midland Odessa Soccers 
Denton Diablos, the Fort Worth Vaqueros, and Dallas City. So really all of North Texas is presented very well in the Texas Conference and the Heartland Conference. You've got Tulsa, Little Rock, our friends in Little Rock, who yes. we faced off against in the South Region Final last season. Demise, and then Ozark. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I take a look at all of these conference divisions, the one that stands out the most is the fact that you look at a team like the Denton Diablos, despite the fact that they came in second, they outscored Midland Odessa, who which were the conference leaders in the Lone Star Division, uh, by 16 goals. They allowed eight more goals than Midland Odessa did. They are a prolific attacking team. That's not a team that I would like to have to play <laughs> if I am Paul Dalglish at Miami FC. Why? Because there is likely not a lot of video on that team. There is likely not a lot of research available on the boys who play for the Denton Diablos. I will say, in fairness, that the Lone Star Conference does have probably two worst teams in MPSL with uh, Caddy1895 and Tyler FC. Historically, kind of sitting at the bottom, give up a ton of goals. You know, Think of them as a Storm FC. No offense. So that's kind of the way I look at that. So again, you know, if all things were to hold true and let's just go ahead and, and use a formality, which we know in soccer never happens, that all the group leaders or all the conference winners advance out of their conference playoffs, Miami would host Chattanooga, and it looks like Midland Odessa would host Tulsa. All right. So that's the way the South kind of breaks off. And then from there, obviously, we get into uh, the headaches that would be the national tournament where Miami FC at least at a minimum will host a national semifinal. Now, that is because Miami finished second in the MPSL power rankings with 2.7 points per game, trailing only the uh, New York Cosmos, <laughs> who have finished with 2.86 points per game, which means that should the Cosmos continue to advance, the tournament will eventually run through Long Island. Yes. If the Cosmos were to fall at any point in the way, like FC Golden State, or like Virginia Beach City, who has also, who has also uh, been knocked out of the playoffs in the Northeast region, you would now have Miami FC hosting the tournament through and through. Yeah, I think if you if you want those Cosmos knocked out at some point, the Brooklyn Italians are going to have to step up and do something. Um, otherwise, it's probably going to be clear saying the, the Northeast is not the, uh, the strongest division uh, in the NPSL. Um, so that your your playoff preview, you know, when you when you deal with the number of teams that we have in the NPSL, ninety two, yeah, I believe so. It's a little bit hard sometimes to really lay out the whole presentation of it because we could be here all day and night and into the next day. But it does give you a good idea of what, you know Miami FC are heading into a competition where they are number two on the list of teams Correct. points per game. So no matter who they're playing, basically, unless it's New York. They're likely going to be the favorite, and they likely will have had the stronger uh, performance on the season than anyone else. Um, so, uh, any other Miami FC business to address? I think you know we're all just ready for the playoffs to start, right? Right. Now it's when the real season starts. I feel like we've been transported <laughs> back in time to a Miami Heat, you know, fandom where it's like, hey, regular season's over, playoffs yeah. are here. It's time for the real season. You know, one thing I will say about the MPSL playoffs. It's best to look at them in, in kind of in the same scope that we judge college baseball. Miami FC is hosting Super Regional. Yes. The New York Cosmos are hosting Super Regional. The Midwest, I don't know what the hell they're doing, <laughs> but they're not hosting Super Regional, right? So that's kind of the way that you should focus on this. You're going to host a set of games. As long as you keep winning, you will have home field advantage until, you know, everybody meets at Omaha, just kidding, uh, <laughs> to duke it out. So that's the way we look at it. But no, for Miami FC, that's about it. 
Uh, with regards to the match on Wednesday, you can get your tickets at MiamiFC.com. If you cannot attend the match, which it is at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, July 10th, from Buccaneer Field at Barry University, we will have the broadcast coming to you live. Yes, Magic City Soccer, the official broadcast partner of the Miami FC, who hosts every match, I should say every home match, is broadcasted on MyKuju. The best way to do that is go to MyKuju.tv on your internet browser. That would be M-Y-C-U-J-O-O.tv. Uh, and then just go through the match calendar. Uh, once we get to 7 o'clock, you'll probably see the game featured anyway on, on the main page. Uh, and, and just check it out. You know, it should be Karta Krishnair and Lee Ethan's on the call. Maybe Matt. No, actually, maybe I. Matt will not be in attendance. Yeah. So it might be me on the third <laughs> mic. You never know. Uh, you never know. Uh, so... That is our Miami FC wrap-up as to here. Now, I want you to make sure that you stay tuned to our website and our social media channels because we will have a live stream on the match, or I should say a live ticker. For those of you who cannot get access to the video, you can't have your headphones on at work, anything like that, we'll give you live updates through Magic City Soccer, our Twitter account. And as well as we will be having recaps and previews of every match that Miami FC is involved in uh, throughout the entire MPSL playoffs. But... Almost bigger news happening in New York, right? Tomorrow, at least, there's, there's a massive ticker tape parade. Yes! World champions, baby! Four stars! Four. That's we right. want four! That's we right. got four! Woo! Give us four! <laughs> four more! <laughs> yeah, why not? Four more, let's do it. Not for the guy in the White House. <laughs> um, so, uh, the U.S. women's national team, um, coming into the 2019 Women's World Cup, were considered a favorite. Yes, but this was really the, the the World Cup of Europe. It was being hosted in France, and it was the ascendancy of European teams. France were considered co-favorite. England had put on a really su- uh, surprising showing in the last World Cup and backed it up. The Netherlands had won the Euro tournament the previous year. Uh, you know there there were a number of teams. Germany is a historic power. Sweden is a historic power. It was presumed that you know this was the 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 time of Europe, and what we got instead was what could really only be described as a coronation. Uh, you know, going back over the history of the U.S. women's program, it has historically been obviously the strongest program in the world, but there was always a counterpart. You know, there was always in the 90s, it was China. In the Correct. 2000s, it was Germany. Correct. Uh, transitioning into Sweden, transitioning into Japan. Uh, where, you know, in in the last World Cup, uh, you know, we, we win, we defeat Japan after Japan had defeated us in 2011. Uh, and so 2019 was like, who's going to be the counterpart? And, and really, it would appear the answer is nobody. Omar, that was a dominant performance by our women's side Pretty much through and through. They were challenged by France, challenged by England. You know, they had to work. But challenged by Spain? Challenged by Spain, challenged by yeah. Spain. But, I mean, it, it seemed like once, you know, you were nervous about the games because, oh, it's the World Cup and it's a knockout game until the team took the field. And once you saw them on the field, it's like, oh, we got this. We're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's really what it was because... I think with the exception of the final match, they scored within the first 15 minutes of every game. Yes. And I want to say maybe I think it was even the first 12, not even the first 15, if you really kind of narrow it down. They had scored six goals in the first 15 minutes during this World Cup. Right. So, I mean, if I'm, yeah, it's insane. Insane when you think about that they were able to get out on the front foot despite all the, you know, air quote, distractions, all of 
the the circus that does surround this team and everything that was going around with it for them to put their head down and then get the job done was the most impressive thing you know when you look at the knockout stages and you saw that you know hey we're playing spain a team that plays a lot of possessive uh possession based football where it's it's a very it, it's artistically very nice to watch what did the United States do? Route one over the top. Bam. Goal. Yeah. Granted, they were given two penalties. That's how they advanced through that game. But that was how to challenge that and how they broke through that. Then in the quarterfinals against France, again, a team that was to be the co-favorite. This is the team that's going to knock off the United States off their perch. You know, yeah, France got a late goal. But when you're looking at the match being 2-0, you didn't think France had any part of it until the last 15 minutes when they really pushed numbers forward. And the United States was, you know, for lack of better words, content on absorbing pressure and staying back. Like, you need to break down our back line in order to score. And eventually they did on a, off a Marie Kennard header, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and go on, you know, to, to advance past France. And and the semifinals was probably the most daunting match of them all. A lot of people would think, you know, hey, the World Cup final would be the big one, right? Mm-hmm. That semifinal against England probably would be, in my opinion, the best team in the world and the second best team in the world going at it. And the United States, some can argue, narrowly squeaked by. But at the same time, you know, listen, that match should have been 3-1 if it wasn't for a disallowed goal from VAR. So to see a penalty miss uh, on another questionable VAR call... Uh, you know, it, it, it almost as if the ball never lies. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's one of those things where I wish we had a podcast last week and we were talking about it because one of the things that I still harp about in that game is with that penalty call for England where it was called that Becky Sauerbrunn made contact with a striker who was loading her leg, was not already in a locked and loaded position, was still bringing the leg back and made contact as the leg is coming back. Does that something that should, you know, be... An offense that warrants a penalty because at what point is the defender now have to stand back watch and pray because if you're not allowing the defender to get into space because they've made contact while there's a buildup into something not while it's being executed while there's a buildup into something it, it, it almost makes the job of a defender even that much harder I was laughing there because I was thinking back to our group chat from last week when this happened. Uh, there's 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 a constantly running uh, text-based podcast with the Magic City Soccer WhatsApp group, um, and this was a hot point of contention. And and it it wasn't really contention. There was we we were all in agreement that it was kind of a crap penalty, and we thought the referee got the call right. And you know with VAR presumably the call is right once it's made that you know once a team of referees has a chance to look at it and they get to interpret the rules as they're written the call is right but it kind of sucked because yeah there was no effort on the part of the defender to get into the defender and make contact contact was made in the natural progression of like a defender not even playing the ball just getting back it seemed very incidental uh, yet it was called a penalty, and, and, and it was a ball don't lie situation. You know, it was, <laughs> it truly was. And I was actually, I was at the Miami Herald for that game, and, and sitting there, and every, a bunch of people were watching because it, it was a big moment in the match. And before the ball, I, I, I don't always get this right, but before the ball left her foot, I was like, oh, she's got it, like it's on the build up, because I could see where she was looking. It was a, it was a bad penalty take. Oh, it was a poor take. It was yeah. a really poor take, yeah. and it was and you could tell it was a poor take because the goalie grabbed it. You never see a goalie <laughs> just eat it, you know. Like right. it's 
deflect away or you know it's it, or a miss if no the yeah. goalie just never collects it right um it was it was really impressive and to me that moment was really symbolic of the u.s women at this tournament it's like we got it yep i'm here no, no worries grabbed it we're good it was casual smooth as you like um really impressive and so france defeated england defeated and on to the final and the and the final was to me a match where one team came in knowing they were better and one team had the only game plan that they could have to try to eke out a win which was bunker down you know park the bus spring the counter and into the netherlands credit two or three times they almost did but it's you've got to be perfect in those situations, and they weren't. Particularly on what was a stone on encountered what we were just talking about a stone cold penalty that VAR saved. And and I will be the lone uh, voice in the night shouting out defending. I think VAR has by and large been fine. There have been a couple instances where it's annoying, but I think that you know even with the the England penalty, like I don't agree with it. But I think that's an issue with the rule book, not VAR. Um, I, you can't have players going studs up into someone's shoulder. Correct. And not getting called penalties in the right. box. And, and, and mark, of, you know, mark down the referee in that match, who was not very good. No. And, and missed that blatant penalty. And thank goodness VAR was there to, 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 to save the day. U.S. gets one. Uh, with Rapino scoring it, then the Lavelle goal was just beautiful, beautiful, a, a, a perfect goal to cap what you could only describe as a perfect tournament. Yeah, I, I will say going back very quickly uh, to the semifinal penalty take uh, with Alyssa Nair. If we were in the Matrix and we were all plugged into systems and we're watching that moment, I think everybody's collective thought at the same time was, "Oh, she is good." <laughs> and, and and not to, and that's unfair to a listener but i think what ended up happening was despite all the criticisms of hope solo and the way that she has uh handled herself in the public eye and w- with the controversies and everything else i think uh, the uninformed american soccer fan looked at this tournament and said i think we'd be a little bit better off with hope solo yeah i think they still yearn because they knew what they had in hope solo and they did not know what they had in the listener because for a while she was splitting time with the Orlando Pride's goalkeeper, Ashlyn Harris. Yes. So I think that was the moment, the sigh of relief, where like, okay, we've got this. You know, and not just we've got this because we've saved the game-tying penalty. No, right. no, no. And, and, and now we're advancing to the finals of the World Cup, but it's more like we, don't, got we, it. we don't have to worry about her anymore. Yes. She's not a question mark. She's a certainty. You know what I mean? Um, and with regards to the final, yes, the French referee, uh, Stephanie Frappard, uh, yeah, that was difficult. That was a hard match to watch uh, in terms of officiating because it did not seem, and not necessarily because the match was being called on one side of the pitch, but a lot of things were being let go that shouldn't. Then a lot of things that you would think would be let go were not. Yeah. Uh, it was very counterintuitive. But yeah, absolutely, you know, if you're going to throw a boot about five and a half feet in the air and catch somebody in the shoulder you're, you're you're especially in the box there needs to be a penalty it's not one of those scenarios where we're talking about well you know is it a second card because the person has a yellow card and the referee doesn't want to make their stance of the game no 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 no. right this is the initial foul right right that needs to be a penalty and and even then i will argue that you know if we're talking about a yellow card 
you know, a player on a yellow card commits a foul that should be another yellow card, even if they had not had one previously before, you got to give that second yellow. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to be on the side of that always. But with regards to VAR, I don't think VAR is the problem. I think the goalkeeper fiasco in the group stages was horrendous. We cannot go back and take a look at micro millimeters and say you're off the line. Agreed. That first, right? Agreed. And that, that's not a VAR problem. That's more along the lines of the rules of the law problem, okay? Yeah. The second thing I will say is where I, where I kind of flinch on VAR is it's supposed to be used for clear and obvious mistakes. It's not supposed to be used for everything. It's supposed to be used for clear and obvious mistakes. Not every mistake is clear and obvious, and it leads me to believe that it is being overused in a sense. What I will say is the thing that people point to the most when they complain about something that's not clear and obvious is, is offsides calls on goals. Okay. Um, I think back to the Cameroon-England match. Um, people were pulling their hair out because the girls, the, the woman was offsides by, you know, half inch or whatever. Correct. She was offsides. No, no, no. Right, right, right. Period. You, it, if you go down that road, then get rid of VAR entirely because what you want is what you think feels right. Not what actually is officiated correctly or incorrectly. If you're offside, you're offside. It doesn't matter if it's by an eyelash. You're offsides. And offsides goals should not stand. Offsides goals, to me, are considered clear and obvious mistakes. Because there was a mistake missed. Therefore, it led to a, a match-defining moment. But I think that there were some instances where VAR was being used... That it was not clear and obvious, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with offsides. You know what I mean? So that that's kind of what worries me a little bit. And and, and it might all go back to the goalkeeper, you know, off on and off their line. But in a moment like that, for example, there was one where I believe it was in a France game where the France player uh, Renard was allowed to, and don't ask me which game because I don't know, was allowed to retake a penalty because the goalie came off her line, right? Mm-hmm. Then on the retake. French players were inside the box before she hit the ball. Why wasn't there a third retake? Or the penalty just disallowed completely right. and then out yes. for a goal kick? That's where I'm. Con- that's where I'm confused because if some things are clear and obvious, and then some things are clear and obviously missed and not even being checked at a second time, you know, you're opening yourself up to speculation where there need not be any. I don't disagree with that. I will say I think that every sport that has instituted instant replay, there is always immediately. A backlash and people complain and there are changes made but when and we have an actual example of this in a different sport the nfl had instant replay correct and then people bitched about it and they got rid of it and then we had a bunch of important games and big calls blown the game is played for a team to win it's not played for it to be aesthetically pleasing. It's not played for it to flow along with your calendar. It's played so that a team wins and loses. It is sport. It is competition. And competition should be adjudicated as fairly and evenly and, and openly as possible. Period. Now, can we tweak this? Absolutely. Can we all agree that, like, Okay, well, actually, your foot was a quarter <laughs> off the the goalkeeper line, but what? Yes, okay, fine. What we we can we can figure out where we want to deploy it and where we don't. But there's way too much of like, oh, scrap it, dump it. You're like well, we, we've had it for this long, right? And it is an imp- 
How many times have we seen clear penalties in the box not called? No, no, I, Every I agree. Every game, there's so, it seems right. like. They're I sure mean, pulling or somebody falling, getting yes. hit in the face. Right, I agree with and you. And we all hate that. We do. And this can alleviate that. You don't, you don't, if you have referees, in, but here's the thing too, because there's always a human element. Will you have officials who are going to call for the box and, want, and, and, and look back over it on shirt pulling in the box? Because that's where I think cause the referees don't want to make that call in the first place. And so are they going to do it for VAR? They should because you do it for one month in the Premier League or one month in La Liga or whoever has VAR and you actually call it, guess what goes away? All that crap in the box. All the stuff that we hate, we can fix with VAR. How about this? Every time a player goes down and there's no contact, VAR can review it without stopping the game. Card. Yeah. You would get rid of it. You would. You could eliminate it from the sport. But everyone's like, oh, no, it kind of slows the game down a little bit. This can be an opportunity to fix the things that we don't like, but everyone is so concerned that it takes us two extra minutes. And I will agree the fact that, like, the referee has to stand there and wait to get called over. Go or don't. Like, just go. Like, there's there's a minute right there we can save every time we need to use VAR. But there there's such a great opportunity. Soccer is such a great game already. But there are things that when people complain about it to us as fans, we're like, well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the flopping is bad or, yeah, you know, it's kind of cold unfairly. We can fix that now and everyone's just wanting to give up on the thing that can actually fix it. It drives me nuts. I know I really went on a VAR uh, no, you're fine. But I feel, like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I feel like <laughs> there's something that like for years – you know, every team thinks that they get bad calls. You know, every team thinks that all the calls go against them and none of the calls go in their favor. Like, you know, as as a, a Liverpool fan, everyone thinks we get every penalty. We're penalty pool. And we feel like we don't get any penalties. So, you know, it's... it's let's let independent arbiters decide that. And I feel like the more tools that they have available to make better calls the better everyone will be. Because ultimately you can't complain. You really can't... I mean, you can... But it sucks to be a fan of a team that got robbed, you know. For sure. It hurts because you didn't lose. You had it taken from you. No team should ever feel like they had a World Cup taken from them. No team should ever have a Champions League feel like it was taken from them. So, yeah, I'm a big proponent of VAR. I feel like everything can always be fixed. But the other sports have fixed it and, and, and have been made better by it. I agree with you completely. I will tell you that there's a video I saw this morning, which I will show you at the end of this podcast because it goes hand in hand with this conversation. And for those of you listening, if you guys want to pause it, watch this video and then listen to what I have to say here in a moment. I want you guys to YouTube essentially uh, mic'd up an exclusive look at a referee's perspective of an A-League game. And this video is actually being hosted by Fox Sports Australia. In the Fox Sports Australia video content, there is a referee that is being promoted from the A-League, the Australian domestic top flight, to the championship in England. There are instances where this video goes to VAR and you hear the communication between the head official, his linesman, the fourth official, and the referees in uh, the video control room. And it goes to show you what that pause is for. They're always having an active conversation. And there are multiple times, or there's actually one instance, where he goes, should I go to the video so that I can sell this. Because he, because 
if he were to make a decision and change it without actually looking at himself because the VAR is implementing something, it's going to cause outrage for the players on the pitch and for the fans on the field. And I want you guys to watch this video. Again, it's by Fox Sports Australia. It was published on March 19, 2019. Uh, it's called An Exclusive Look at a Referee's Perspective of an A-League Game. And I'm going to show it to Matt after the podcast because there's a lot of things that we don't see that we get frustrated by with that two, three-minute pause before they actually go to the TV screen. But the VAR official is actually trying to, or the official in the control room, is actually trying to minimize the stoppage in play. They're trying to, in a sense, you know, minimize or I should say shorten how long these delays are going to be. And if they can have a conversation in the last 30 seconds, instead of a seven-minute review off the field at, at, at the you know at the center circle, the midfield line, okay, even better. You know what I mean? We're saving six and a half minutes. So I think it's really keen for everybody to watch because I don't have any issues with VAR, and I think this actually solves a lot of kind of the concerns and the questions that come from it. Um, but going back to the, the women's tournament, um, we saw three awards be given out at the end of that tournament. And and the awards, I kind of want your opinion on because, you know, Megan Rapinoe won the Golden Boot. She won the Golden Boot, however, tied with Alex Morgan because of a minutes differential. Yes. I think she had played about 40-some-odd minutes less than Alex Morgan. However, most of her goals, if I'm not mistaken, I believe four, were from the penalty spot. So does Megan Rapinoe deserve the Golden Boot when there's four set-piece goals there? Or do you look at it as a goal's a goal, it doesn't matter? There are two factors at play. One, uh, I am of the opinion a goal is a goal. Okay. It's a high... It, it, I mean, it's different, obviously, but it's such a high-pressure situation, whereas a goal from open play... I mean, there's pressure in a game, but in in reality, that pressure is not that much different than trying to send the ball in for the goal. So I I think that it's different, but still it, it counts. I think that if there is a, an actual tie, which may violate my argument here... A tie should probably go to goals from open play. But, on the other hand... Yes. Alex Morgan just beat up Thailand. <laughs> that's that's why I don't feel so bad. I think in most instances, I think open play should be rewarded. It should be the tiebreaker. But, I mean, not that Alex... Alex Morgan had a great tournament. The whole team had a great tournament. Not taking anything away from anyone. But when you score five against one team, it does kind of diminish it. If she had scored... If they were tied at 10 okay, and she had scored five against Thailand, I'd feel a lot like worse about it. I don't feel very bad about it because I don't feel like I don't feel like Alex Morgan was so deserving that oh my God, you know she just had she had one game where she just blew a team up and and great and again, a goal's a goal, but because both of them kind of have mitigating factors, I feel like whatever the tiebreaker is, I'm happy with it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And then the the other one that I've been listening to on, on radio and other podcasts has been Rose Laveau winning the bronze ball, right? The golden ball went to Megan Rapino. The silver ball went to Lucy Bronze. A lot of people consider Lucy Bronze to be, if not the best defender, one of the best defenders in the tournament Yes. Uh, for England. So I kind of look at it this way now. Rose Laveau scored three times for the USA. Uh, with regards to how many assists she had, I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to go ahead and say that she had one. She may not have had any. All right? Is that a bronze ball? Do you think she earned the bronze ball because of her contributions in the final with that last goal, the excellent play that it was? Or do you think it was just for her creativity throughout the tournament? Like, what cemented her getting that award? First off, I will say that I think uh, Lucy Braun should have gotten the bronze ball. Just for obvious reasons. You know, like, if your last name is Bronze. Hey! hey. That's, that's just... 
to me, that's just logic. That's just science. Um, I, I will say I think Lavelle, she won it in two games because her contributions in the final were great, but she was on one in the semifinal. She had a tremendous game. She might have been the most important U.S. player yep. in that semifinal. And so I, I do feel like, particularly when it comes to awards like this, and it's not just soccer, it's you know uh, basketball and hockey and um, that do these kind of postseason awards, uh, what have you done for me lately is a big factor. Yes. You know, you can have a huge opening round, uh, but then if you fade in the, in the finals, you don't get the attention. You can have a... Uh, you know, but if you have a great final, you know, series, right? Uh, a lot of times that's the guy who'll get the playoff MVP. Um, so I think that's an example of Lavelle kind of squeaking in there uh, because of the fact that in in the two biggest games where it mattered most, she was stupendous. Put herself on the forefront of the conversation, especially with regards to the future of the U.S. Women's National Team. Because, Absolutely, because Rapino is thirty four. You know, we don't have any word. Honestly, we don't have any word of who's staying and who's going with regards to the Olympic tournament that should be taking place at the end of the year. And at the same time, going into the Summer Olympics next year. You know, I said a couple weeks ago, if you're Joe Ellis, given all the criticism that you're facing, you know what? Right off into the sunset. Why even run the risk of having to go to the Summer Olympics again? But I think if you're Joe Ellis now, you want that gold medal. Oh, yeah. And I don't think the coaches get a gold medal in the Olympics. I could be mistaken about that. But I remember it very clearly in the 1984 Winter Olympics that Herb Dean, was the name Herb Dean? The, who was the U.S. Men's, uh, US men's National Hockey Dean. Coach? Herb uh, Brooks. Herb Brooks, yes. Herb Brooks. Sorry, Herb Dean. Uh, who's Herb Dean? Herb, oh, that's the MMA official. My apologies. Herb <laughs> <laughs> Brooks. Um yeah, he was not given a medal. So what the what the men did, if I'm not mistaken, was that they all forged their medals together, essentially, and then created an additional medal, reducing the size of all their individual medals so that he would have one himself. If I'm not mistaken, that could be a completely fictional story that I just made up. But if I'm not mistaken, I, I do know that's It sounds case. nice, though. Right. So for Joe Ellis, having you know the Olympic championship on the resume, um, I, I think now you know there is kind of that lofty ambition. And, and the question will be... You know, will Megan Rapinoe be back? Will Kelly O'Hara be back? Will some of the aging superstars, you know, be back for that tournament? And a tournament that, you know, honestly, they're going to be the favorites for because they're going to qualify at a CONCACAF, that's for sure, alongside Canada. And it's just going to be, can the U.S. avoid a failure in that Olympics much like they did in 2016 or much like they, they did fail in 2016, I should yes. say. I think that uh, normal the history of women's soccer is that winning... The World Cup and then following up with the Olympics is really hard. Yes. I, I think the only team... I could be wrong, and I'm talking out of my, my behind here, maybe. But I think the only team to do it was Japan. Okay. Uh, did Wait, am I wrong there? I'm not sure. Who won the 2012... Okay, Omar's on that. Anyway, the point is, it's hard because you're content. You know, you're fat and happy. You won the World Cup. Who gives a damn about anything else? I do think that this team wanted that medal in 2016 and Sweden took it out from under them. Pia Sunhaga took it out from under them. I think they're going to be really motivated to make one more run at it. And yeah, you may have some of the older players, you know, yield to the younger players, but as we've seen in this tournament, this team is deep as hell. Like they've got so many players in so many places. It's a problem. You have you have Jill Ellis and you know, she's getting the stick for it, but benching players and people are saying, "Why are you benching her?" And then, you know, 
a player like Rose Lavelle comes on and blows the doors off the joint. That's why. So even if you lose a Rapino, which you think would be, oh, and she's the Golden Boot winner, the Golden Bowl winner, she's irreplaceable. Ah, eh, the, 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 the bench is deep enough that it could work. And no women's team has ever back-to-back won the Women's World Cup and then gone on to win the Women's Olympic Tournament uh, because the USA had a stretch there in the 2000s where they won three in a row. Where they did not win a World Cup because this was the in between yes. years between ninety nine and twenty fifteen, yes. uh, where they were just winning Olympic ter- Olympic gold medals, but not actually yes. uh, winning in the Women's World Cup tournament. Oh three and oh seven, Germany did the back to back. Correct. Yeah. So here is kind of where we're going to spin off to. We've talked about the women. We've talked about Miami FC and the Sunshine Conference and the way MPSL works. All right, we're leaving the ugly one for last. The U.S. men's <laughs> national team in the United in the CONCACAF Gold Cup. Now, I'm going to say something that I'm going to get chewed out for. I don't think it was a bad showing at the Gold Cup. I think that they did as well as anybody could have hoped for. I think they got the results that were necessary. Some were not pretty. For example, that Curacao game, I believe, was not necessarily one of their better performances. If I'm not mistaken, I think they won that game 1-0. Um, or I might be confusing that with a different match. But the way they played against Trinidad and Tobago, the way that they played against Jamaica in the group stages, the way that they played against even in the semifinals, uh, which now I do not recall, Jamaica again in the semifinals. Yes. They did exactly what they had to do to win the game, and it not, wasn't always pretty. Yes, there were some 6-0 wins that were fantastic, but you, you need to beat who's in front of you. And unfortunately, they fell up short against Mexico in a game that... <laughs> they may have had the better chances. Yeah, I... It, it kind of... Five years, this team has gone from capturing the attention of the country and really having on your striker's foot the chance to go to the World Cup quarters. Correct. To a punchline. Unfortunately. And... and I, the women doing what they're doing does them no favors. <laughs> it does like, not. And the whole equal pay argument does them no favors either. What made me think once we moved to this line, there was a tweet from Rob Flaherty, who's actually the digital director for Beto O'Rourke, um, but kind of not really, a little bit political, but not that political. His tweet uh, after the win on Sunday. Uh, anyway, if you want to watch the U.S. soccer team that gets paid a whole lot more, play demonstrably worse in a significantly less important game, the Gold Cup final is tonight. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty, pretty brutal and accurate takedown. The, the problem for the U.S. men's team here is they're, we're in an interregnum, period. We, we're, we're clearly in this down point, which is a natural thing for countries to go through. But... For so long, you would relied on the, the, the you know the old the old guns. A long, long, long time. Even even back to like honestly, twenty ten World Cup. You mm-hmm. know, still getting uh, you know uh, Landon Donovan in there, and, and Tim Howard wasn't young. And it's been almost a decade of trying to take the last little you know drops and sips of this this generation that had come up in the early to mid-2000s and had done a great job. Yep. Um, but whatever the youth development program the United States put in place prior to them hosting the World Cup, uh, from 90 to 95, 
like the kids born 90 to 95 immediately after the 94 world cup those kids get into the program it's been a disaster it's been bad it's been horrific yep and uh it's a lost generation when you should have had the next step taken the next step was taken by the guys who watched the players qualify for the 90 world cup those guys made the step the, the this next generation though it's been completely lost and then you have these young players who who Burhalter is clearly trying to 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 now push which is the right move but you still got to get results and so it's this weird thing it's kind of like again too many non-soccer analogies today but it's like an NBA coach or an NFL coach who should be not really trying to win games developing young players getting a better draft pick but knows that if he doesn't get to 500 He's out on his ass. Right. So he's like, okay, I got to win these games with these guys, but these guys really aren't going to do any good for me like, because really we should be looking ahead to 2022. And it's just you're stuck. You just feel like you're kind of stuck in the middle, and the middle is beating everyone else in CONCACAF and losing to Mexico. And U.S. soccer should not be in a place where we have no shot of beating Mexico. I just feel like we could have played that game ten times, and it wasn't an embarrassing showing. But Mexico also didn't have a lot of its biggest guns. Neither did we. Neither did we, in, in fairness. But, yeah, you just you wonder, like, wh- where is this all going? I, I think, here's why I don't think the Gold Cup was a failure. Despite not winning it, I don't think it was a failure because of really quite a few things. One, Confederations Cup no longer exists. If you win the Gold Cup this year and Confederation Cups, uh, the Confederation Cup still exists, you won the last iteration of this tournament, you won this iteration of this tournament, guess what? Now you've got a berth in the 2021 tournament yeah. warm up for the, for the World Cup. And it is super sad that that tournament no longer exists. Agreed. All right? Second thing, you've, you've identified a right back. You have identified a right back that now allows you to play Tyler Adams in his natural role as a number six. You've got Christian Pulisic now carrying the weight up top. And you've identified Weston McKinney where if you want to play Pulisic as a striker, guess what? You can play Weston McKinney and right behind him is a number 10. The biggest concern that I have moving forward for this team is what are you going to do about left back? Because I, I don't necessarily know what the hell happened to Fabian Johnson other than getting hurt. But for the last three years, Fabian Johnson has not been called up. He has not been injured for three years. Okay. <laughs> That was the United States' predominant left back. Now with Reggie Cannon, you taking on the right back role, you can now deploy DeAndre Yedlin if you want to higher up the field, maybe as a right wing and run a 4-3-3 if you really wanted to. A defending 4-3-3 with Tyler Adams in the middle that has the freedom to create, and then you can put in front of him Weston McKinney and then whoever else you want in the midfield. Name your pick. You see who's coming up through the youth ranks and Josh Sargent, who didn't make the cut this time around. Sebastian Soto, who looked really well in the Under-20 World Cup. Uh, and a couple other guys from the Under-20 World Cup that, that really did impress. You know, Timothy Weah is going to be somebody who's coming in on this club. I'm sorry, on for the United States men's national team in the near future. So the future is bright. I don't think qualifying for 2022 is going to be difficult. I think it's going to be a shoo-in, to be 100% honest. And not just because, are there expanded teams in 2022? No, right? It's still a standard 32-team tournament. I don't think they expanded it. I think they're working on it. I think it's something that is a priority, but I think there's a lot of pushback. Okay. I'm pretty sure it has not been finalized. I'm pretty sure it's something that FIFA is still trying to make happen. Let's say it doesn't. I still don't think it's going to be difficult to get out of the hex if that still is the way that qualification will go 
for CONCACAF. I think for the United States, you've identified now your first choice goalkeeper, Zach Steffen, a pretty good one, who loaned out today from Manchester City to Fortuna Dusseldorf in the Bundesliga. Uh, but you need to find a center back. You need to find a center back pairing because Aaron Long, his contributions were great. I don't think on the world stage he's good enough. Matt Miazga has not proven to be good enough. I'm sorry. Tim Ream as your left back of choice. Oof. That, 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 that's a hard one to swallow. So you've got to shore up three of your three positions on your back line. That's difficult, man. Yeah. That's hard. But I think you've, you've seen kind of the evolution of this national team. And, you know, I think the big tough decisions for Burhalter and where we will see growth is if he does not stick with the MLS-centric lineup. Like, Will Trapp has shown that he cannot compete on the world stage. And it's not, no offense to Will Trapp, excellent soccer player in MLS, but when he's on the international game, he's a step and a half too slow. And you got to kind of have to pull from different places and not just pull the guys from MLS that you're comfortable with. I think that's going to be the key for this team moving forward. And that's very Jurgen Klinsmann of me to say. I was just going to say. But, but, you, listen, you saw the result in this Gold Cup. You saw it. I, you saw it in the friendlies leading up to it. I think that when it comes to man management, Jurgen Klinsmann was not strong. But when, I, when it comes to what the vision of the U.S. soccer program should look like, I think he was very much on the right, the right track. And I think the backslide that you've seen from U.S. soccer, it's as much to do with Bruce Arena Part 2 yes. as it does oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, yeah, you, it seemed, we had this conversation the other day at the final, it seems like... America's league system is doing a better job at developing the rest of CONCACAF yep. into competing with the U.S. than it actually does developing American players. It's a real problem. You have seen a, and rightfully so, a flight of young American players getting the hell out of the United States and going to Germany or going elsewhere. But Germany has obviously been the big focus. So you have a, a, what would we call it, a Power 5 European, uh, you know, uh, league yes. in the Bundesliga, yes. like one of the top five leagues in Europe, looking at the United States and seeing quality in its young players, more than really we've seen in, 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 in ever, yet the national team is spinning its wheels. So what's going on? I that to me that's the looking at the micro. Yes, you're seeing okay. Right back is more settled. Your attack is getting more settled. That's good. That's all good. But we have seen so many players in the last five years. Is this is the guy? This is the guy that's going to settle this problem or that problem. And really, the only guy that has come through and delivered on that fully is Christian Pulisic. Where you're like, yeah, he's clearly. Great, but um, you know we were talking again at the final the other day. You know, Mix Disclerud was was the superstar. Like, you know, he's he, you know he's in and he doesn't get run in the national team anymore. So what's happening to these players where they're either they're, they're rising up the ranks of the national team and it would appear the rest of their career is like disappearing from them. I can you tell know? you what happened. It's two consecutive missed 
Olympic tournaments. Yes. That's what it is. The under-23 team being a devastating failure and not being able to qualify for the Olympic tournament. Yeah. Which, you know, Olympic tournament qualification should be at the end of the year, if not at the beginning of next year. The United States needs to win one of the two CONCACAF spots. They have to get in because Mexico is going to get one. The yeah. United States needs to be the other. Why? Because that is the next step. That is the next step for players like uh, Georgi Mihalovic. For players like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, oh man, Weston McKinney would be taking a monumental step with summer soccer there. You know what I mean? Getting guys in, uh, necessarily maybe an overage player, Matt Miazga is still 23. You can get Aaron Long some more run. You can test out your future goalkeepers behind Zach Steffen if you wanted to within that tournament. Now, where do I kind of worry a little bit? Well... Is that U tweet? Is that U twenty three team gonna mesh, right? But getting Timothy Weah in that lineup, getting guys like Josh Sargent minutes in that kind of tournament, a meaningful tournament that has pressure built into it, right? That's that's where they're gonna build. That's where they're gonna go. But the problem becomes is if you cannot find a way to qualify for that damn tournament, you're gonna have a problem. Because now you're going to waste possibly yet another generation. And thank God for the performances in the U-17s, the U-19s, and I believe the U-20 World Cups in the last three years, that it's been decent. It's been decent. But that U-23 side needs to show up. And whether it's comprised completely of the U-20 side or not is yet to be seen. But they need to qualify for that World Cup in order to take the next step. Especially, I'm sorry, for the Olympic tournament in order to take the next step uh, for the 2022 World Cup, in my opinion. That has really been a... Um I mean, it's one of the great under-sold like storylines of U.S. men's soccer is the fact that we've had such a terrible time trying to get into that Olympic tournament. And, you know, you say, well, the Olympic tournament, no one cares about the Olympic tournament. It's it's an afterthought. But, but no, it's you've got to get in it and get your guys run against good-level competition that's not a friendly. It's not a friendly. It, it's not the World Cup. It's not a friendly. And... Yeah, you have other federations surpassing you because they're getting their guys the competition they need to take the next step and to push themselves, and the U.S. has not. And so that's – I feel like the the next two years are going to be very interesting in the development of the U.S. men's program because, yeah, we're not talking about, oh, how are we going to build for 2022 to compete and get to the quarters, get to the semis maybe. Who knows? And now it's just like, you know, you're, you're confident about us qualifying, and I hope to feel the same way, but – this men's team does not inspire confidence at all. I wouldn't be surprised them screwing it up somehow. They screwed up the last time. They screwed up the 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 easiest layout to qualify for the World Cup ever. They spit the bit. And so why why would I be confident? Why would I think it's a slam dunk? No, I, they're going to screw it up until they show me otherwise. Assume they screw it up. Yeah, that's fair, but at the same time you look at you look at what what it has been with the Jurgen Klinsmann beginning of the hex, to where it went, to where they bottled it, and then to the results after the fact. It's a new look, but I don't expect Michael Bradley to go anywhere. Don't expect Josie Altador to go anywhere because they are cogs to the system, and they need to be there until the baton is fully passed. But, uh, man, I don't know. A- again, we, you should have been there at Winwood Brewery <laughs> on Sunday because we, we covered a lot of this ground already, but... I mean, Josie Altador, in terms of, like, putting in service for his country, like, as though he were in the military, I appreciate it, okay? But, man, we're still going back to this well. We don't have anyone 
that's like ready to they can be worse than Josie but they wouldn't have anyone that's close that you would want to be like you know what let's get this guy some run in the gold cup that really we don't care about that much like everyone is th- everyone thinks we're going to screw up the gold cup anyway let's actually let's let's take the someone from the the, the you know the younger part of the program and throw him in there and, and and let him play against Mexico what what's the benefit of getting more run for Josie Altador you know he's not 30 yet right Josie Altador? No, he's not even 30. He's 29. Wow, really? Josie Altador has scored a goal every 108... I'm sorry, every third match for this United States men's national team. I, you yes. can do far worse than Josie Altador. Josie Altador will finish as the leading men's scorer in the United States Olympic men's national team history. He's yeah. going to surpass Clint Dempsey. He's going to surpass Landon Donovan. So the shtick that Josie Altador gets is unfair. It's biased. It's unfair. It's not necessary. And it does not matter, yes. Has he been the most fit athlete? No. Has he missed a couple World Cups due to injury? Yes. But the man has put away 42 goals and 115 caps for the U.S. men's national team. I will die on this hill. (laughs) Josie Aldador is the premier striker in the United States. There's not anybody who's freaking close to him. Jordan Morris, not close to him. Giazzi Sardes, not a striker. Sorry. Tyler Boyd, five matches, two goals. Maybe we're on the right track. We've got a long way to go. And for Michael Bradley's sake, you you don't have anybody else who's going to man the midfield. Tyler Adams will take his role eventually, and then it will be a situation of where do we put Michael Bradley in order to best utilize the team? Does he play 30 minutes a game? Does he pay, does he play a starter role, and then maybe we have him in a different position on the field? That's one thing. But Michael Bradley's leadership is will be around until the 2022 World Cup. And anybody who says that Michael Bradley is a detriment to this team, again, you're looking at this match, you're looking at these matches with blinders on. You're looking at it with bias, you're looking at it with blinders because you're not seeing what everybody else is seeing on the field. I guess my point with Josie and with and with Michael, I've I've long been I, I think Michael Bradley does a fine job. And and Josie does a fine job too. It's just that all eyes have to be on twenty twenty two. At this point in qualification. Okay. And there's no one behind them pushing them, really. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, where it's just you, it's as though you have a, 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 a valley, a, 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 you know, a, a grand canyon of like six years of players where there's nothing. And I guess I'm just here complaining that that's the way it is. <laughs> but like, Josie Aldor is a good player and a fine striker, but I don't think he's a game changer. I don't think he's a game changer. I don't think he's really ever been a game changer. He's changed one game, Spain, Confederations Cup. That, that kind of play was what grabbed everyone's attention, but that was 10 years ago. But do you need a game changer as a striker? Do you need a game, ch- a game changer as your number 10? I, I, I mean, we need every. I mean, but the thing I mean, is, you kind of have Pulisic. Although you're, you're, you were alluding to the fact he might slot. Uh, you, you, higher. Pro- right. But like, yeah, you do need someone who can just go in and, and and, make magic. You know, put put the ball in the back of the net out of a little bit of nothing. And again, that goal against Spain was kind of nothing. It was a physical play, and he he made the most of what he had, and and boom, all of a sudden you're up against Spain. But yeah. I just I I think he is very good at finishing opportunities that should be finished. Not great, very good. And I think that 
the fact that there's no there's no one even close to pushing him. Like you said, the guy that's closest is not a striker. The guy that's closest is not a striker. Th- hey, like, that's look, crazy. You I, know what I mean? That just drives me bananas. I've got the list of strikers or forwards. And we're going to go through these very quickly. Just yes or no answers that you think will eventually give Josie out to do a run for his money. Just to show you the gravitas of the situation. Josh Sargent. Yeah, no. No. Joe Joe Giu. No. Yeah, no. Jonathan Amon. No. Corey Baird. No. Christian Ramirez, CR23. Uh, no. Jeremy Abobze. Uh, no. Bobby Wood. Don't you fucking dare say yes. <laughs> Don't you fucking dare say yes. No. Timothy Weah? Yeah. Not right now, though. Not right now, but but possibly. Julian Green? Um, I, no. Okay. That's the problem. That's the problem, is that everybody shits on Josie Altidore because Josie Altidore, you know, mishits a ball that's basically behind him with his off foot and talks about, oh, he should be up 1-0, blah, 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 blah. Everybody wants to fucking just shit all over Josie Altador. But then when you look at who can who would replace Josie Altador, Yazi Sardis? Yeah, I mean that's that's Yazi Sardis is turd. No, he's, he's worse. No, right? what, I, what I'm saying is like, yeah, that's the guy that you would like have to slot in as that's the guy pushing Josie Altador and Josie Altador is better. But like that's Jordan Morris? Yeah, no. I mean, uh, Jordan, right, I, I think Jordan Morris is the guy that I think would possibly maybe have uh, in that kind of age range. We've been talking about Jordan Morris but for six years. He's I been know. Shit. I agree. That's what I'm saying. I'm not. Look, I started in on this by kind of going hard on Josie Altador. What I meant to say, is, like, do you think Josie Altador is anywhere close to a, 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 a top 50 striker in the world? Top 50? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Now we have to make a differential. Top 50 striker in the world or top 50 striker in club football in the world? In the, in the world. In yeah. the world. Yeah, he might be 50. He might be 50. He might be 50. He might be 50. <laughs> but, but, but. I, my, my point is, is that <laughs> he's good. He's not great. He's not great, but nobody we have is great. But that's what I'm frustrated about. Okay, if fair that's, enough. That's my whole point is like we uh, the guy who is the producer, the guy that's expected to like hang, knock in goals, he's just good. But was Landis- and there's no one who's anywhere close to him. Like it's him and then a giant gulf and then the other guys and he's not that great. Was Landon Donovan a top 50 striker in the world? I think for for country, yeah. I, I think in terms of what he was able to produce, yes. I mean, you he always wo- had confidence. You had confidence, and and it like look, a world class poacher. And and the thing is too, the U.S. is trying this style of play with Burhalter, and it's a change of pace, and and it's it's probably good for the development of a better soccer team. But yeah, you expect the U.S. to be in a dogfight, to be strong at the back, and then have a guy at the front. Who's waiting for the ball to fall somewhere close to him, and he's gonna put it in. And Josie's not great at that. Okay. And we're not good at the style of play we're playing. So, like. I, I agree with you. I'm as equally frustrated as you, but me getting a rise out of you is entertaining. <laughs> Clint, was Clint Dempsey ever a top fifty striker in the world? No. But, but so that's what I'm saying, though. But but, like, but then I wouldn't. I, but Clint Dempsey and Landon Donovan. At their best, were a, a league better than Josie Altador at his best. 
That's what I'm saying. Okay. Is that the quality of play at that position went from pretty good, pretty good, good. Okay. It went down. And you could go across the field and say that at a lot of positions. It's why the U.S. is in the position they're in, going from you know, quarterfinalists and competing for quarterfinals to not make the World Cup. It's not, Josie is not the only, again, it makes it seem like I'm in the, I hate Josie Altador club. I don't. No, you're not. It's, it's just, I, he has to be frustrated. I'm sure he is. He has to be so he, frustrated because he is a good player. And I don't think his skills are being used well. No, because he doesn't have anybody <laughs> to service the ball yes. behind him. And, and the only one who can service the ball behind him is Christian Pulisic and he's playing next to him. Right. <laughs> Listen, you look at caps, the U.S. men's national team caps, right, in terms of goals per game. The only person who has scored more goals per game in terms of caps is Clint Dempsey. Josie Altador, 0.37. Clint Dempsey, 0.4 goals per 90 minutes, all right? On top of that, Josie Altador trails both Clint Dempsey and Landon Donovan by 15 goals. He has, if I'm not mistaken, doing the quick math, he has 26 less caps than Clint Dempsey, and he has about 42 less caps than Landon Donovan. He's going to get those 15 goals within those 42 caps. It's going to happen. If he gets 42 more caps for this U.S. men's national team, which I believe he should, I believe he's earned it, he will have more than 57 goals. And there's clearly no one behind him that's going to take his job. Not for at least three, four years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Look, again... He, like, when the history of U.S. soccer is written, he definitely is going to be included. But there's a reason why, and I don't think it's just, oh, because fans are dumb. There's a reason why when you talk to people like, oh, the great American goal scorers, it's going to be Dempsey, Donovan, Altador. You know? It's going to be in that order, even if the numbers don't favor, uh, don't favor Dempsey or Donovan, because they played in big games and okay, made impacts. Fair. And Josie Altador, like I said, the, 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 the goal against Spain, tremendous. That's like an awesome moment that everyone will remember. And honestly, like if you're an athlete and you play for your nation, if you can have a moment like that, like that's that's all you need. Like ultimately, he shouldn't have to buy a drink anywhere because he helped us beat Spain in the Confederations Cup and beat the greatest team the world had seen. Goal like, number seven out of 42. Yeah. Like awesome. Awesome, awesome. But yeah, it's like what? What else? What? What else? Well, it's is there? because he didn't play in the 2014 World Cup and he didn't play in the 2018 World Cup. He's missed two World Cups. But and, if and, he had and, those two World yeah. Cups, let's say he gets another seven games. Let's say the U.S. gets out of the group stage of one and they don't get out of the group stage in the other, right? He might have an additional three, four goals. So he would be racking up 46 going into at the end of this Gold Cup if all else things hold, held true. So that's what I'm trying to say, though, is that we all rationalize and we all get mad at Michael Bradley and Josie Altador for this, like, failed, you know, qualification run. And the truth is, it, it, the failure was the system. The failure wasn't the player. It's time to shop, stop shitting on the player that's going to transfer that baton because they're going to need him. They're going to need both of them. Go get Tim Howard out of retirement. <laughs> I mean, it's tempting, right? It is. <laughs> All right, let's 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 wrap things up here. Long story short, we love South Florida native Josie Altador. He does a fine job, and the U.S. men's national team has a long way to go to get back to where it was, and that's what hurts the most, is that they were there. They were at the World Cup every year. 
They were getting out of groups, it seemed, every year. They, yep. were, they were taking it to big teams yep. like Portugal and Belgium. Belgium. And they were they, England and, and, and making hay. And now it seems like we're very far away from that. And that sucks. It does suck. So hopefully we see the turnaround soon. Uh, but only time will tell. Okay, so uh, as a reminder, things on the calendar, things to be aware of. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. Buccaneer Field Barry at University. Barry University. The Miami FC opens up its NPSL playoff campaign against Jacksonville United FC under 23. Jacksonville United? Oh, God, I'm sorry. Jacksonville Armada. I've hit my expiration time. Hour 15 is when I expire. Uh, Jacksonville Armada FC under 23, 7 o'clock in the semifinal for the Sunshine Conference. Uh, we will also see Naples United and Miami United play, but you will see the game, if you don't come out to Buccaneer Field, you will see the game on uh, the MiamiFC.com or on MyKuju.tv uh, from the the Magic City Soccer broadcast team, along with Kartik Krishnayer. Um, beyond that, uh, any more home games, and if Miami FC win, they're going to be guaranteed home games until the final, at least, I mean, until the semifinal, at least. Um, we'll be, be we will be there for that as well. If you want to check us out, um, you can visit MagicCity.Soccer. We have had some technical issues in the last couple of days, so but hopefully those should have been resolved. Um, you know the the gerbils that power the website have been rioting, but we're putting that rebellion down. Um, so yeah, ch- check out the website MagicCity.Soccer. You can also check us out on social media. We're very active there. Magic City Soccer on Twitter. Uh, Magic City Soccer on Facebook and Magic City SOC, Magic City Sock on Instagram. Credit to Lee Fans is doing a great job with the Instagram. He's really, although I think he's the oldest of us, he's really the youngest of us in terms of uh, operating the social media. He does a very good job. Um, yeah, so that's where you can find us. Omar, where can we find you on Twitter? Buy at 11 on Twitter, man. Mubai at 11 on Twitter, and I am at Matthew S. Bunch. Uh, I think that's it. Any final thoughts? I, there was one. I was going to say it out loud. I don't remember what it is now. So off with their heads. Okay, well, we'll save that till next time. Uh, and so until next time, uh, go Miami FC and go Miami United in their semifinals. And go Miami soccer. Oh, bring that Nations League game to Miami. U.S. versus Cuba. October. Let's do it. Woo!